0: Good morning. Um, I'm Rick Hansen. Um, <clears throat> I thought what we could do is sit quietly for about ten minutes or so, uh, welcoming ourselves here, arriving ourselves, even as others coming in. About a third of the people have uh, yet to arrive, and you know it's the usual parking turkeys, who knows, congestion out there. Uh, you know, this. Then we'll start a little more officially in about ten more minutes. So just however you like, letting yourself come here, uh, eyes open or closed,
1: uh, whatever's good for you.
0: morning. We're going to have some announcements.
2: With great great kindness, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the great hall here at Spirit Rock. My name is Christina Tavera, and I'm the event coordinator for today. I'm at your service. My office is to the left of the bookstore, and I should be there pretty much all day. If you need anything from a band-aid to a suggestion, um, feel free to find me. Uh, Today's event is almost solely run by volunteers. May I have the volunteers uh, who are supporting this event today stand up for a moment? Most of them are outside right now. Thank you very much for your service today. Uh, Like I said, this event couldn't happen today. If you're interested in volunteering, there's sign-up sheets on the counter (coughs) in the back. Um, We get to welcome Rick Hansen back again today. It's always fun to have him in the great hall. Um, Rick is a psychologist and a senior fellow at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and a New York Times bestselling author. You can find his books um, in the bookstore all day today. And he served on the board here at Spirit Rock. And his classes are pretty much amongst the most popular that we te- that we have here at Spirit Rock. So he's always here in the big hall. So welcome back. In the big hall. In the big hall. (laughs) With the big kids, right? With the big kids. (laughs) Exactly. When I told him there was a special event in the West Hall, which is up on the second floor, and it's much smaller, he didn't even know there was a West Hall. So there you go. Um, Which is a good thing. It's a good thing. Now is a really great time for you to turn off your cell phones. Not on vibrate, not on anything special, completely off, please, um, for the greater good of everyone in the room. There are restrooms at the end of this hallway, uh, both men, women, and all-gender. There are two all-gender single stalls upstairs uh, on the second floor. At this point, if anyone is having a hard time hearing what I'm saying, we have assisted hearing devices on the wall in the back of the room. Uh, Feel free, do not be shy, to take one of those. You're going to have a much better experience hearing everything Rick has to say with all of his slides. So... um, up there, and those lovely gentlemen—that's Kevin and Jesse back there—they're going to be with you all day. Yay! And um, and so they will help fit you with that. Um, as I mentioned, the second floor. There's a special event in the West Hall. Otherwise, there's nothing else happening in this building. The building is all yours, but I'm going to ask that you not use the West Hall today or the patio off of the West Hall. Um, so when you take your walks and you have your lunch. Have it anywhere in this building. Have it on the patio. Go out to the meadow. It's stunning. Go anywhere except for past the wooden gates. And if you're in the meadow and you've reached a sweat lodge structure, a little wooden kind of thing, don't go past there. There is a silent retreat happening up there today. Um, This hall generally we, we use as a silent hall for lunch. So you're welcome to bring any food you like in here. Just make sure that you're eating in silence. Conversations can happen outside. You will hear a bell when it's time to come back, usually about one to two minutes before. So um, make sure to heed the bell. Wherever you are, uh, the bell will be following you. There are snacks for sale in the lobby. There's tea for sale. Uh, Any beverage is allowed in here as long as it has a lid if you make a spill somewhere, we do have uh, volunteers will, who will help clean it up. Just grab a volunteer and let them know about the spill. And uh, bookstores open until 5 o'clock, and it's on the honor system, so you may not find someone there. So if you have trouble, there are instructions on the countertop. And otherwise, uh, find me and I'll help you. The, there are CEs. Uh, There are credits today. If there's anyone who is expecting to get credits today and has not signed in, now's the time to get up and go out to the lobby and sign in. Um, Also, no one can sign out before 4.30. There are 50 people getting CEs today, Rick. 50 people. That's the most I've ever seen. That means there's going to be lines. So take your time. Hang out. Talk to Rick. Do something else. And then come and crash the CE table because it's going to be... It's going to be what it is. Oh,
0: you mean at the end?
2: At the end, not before,
0: 4.30. Uh,
2: Two fabulous events that you should know about, and then I'm going to be done with you. Uh, The Community Welcome Program happens on Monday nights before Monday night meditation. That is uh, 6.30 to 7.05. That's a free gathering. That's not only great for folks who are brand new to meditation, you know, those who think you're really cool, bring them. Uh, but it's also really good if you kind of want to know what's coming, what's happening here. Um, they're led by um, meditation teachers here, and they can answer all your questions. Also, this month, there's a children's program that happens tandem to Monday night meditation. So at 7.15, you can bring the little ones upstairs to the second floor, and they have cookies, and they have meditation, and they create an altar, and they go wander around the meadow, and they have a great time. And it's $15.00. Per family, no matter how many children, no one will ever be turned away for lack of funds. I want to acknowledge a special group that came to see you today, Rick. Um, We have San Francisco State. We have students from San Francisco State. Would you raise your hands? Um,
1: This is really cool.
2: This is, um, we have a great student and senior program here. And I'm so glad that you all came. You gave up your Saturday to do this. You came from the city. Um, So welcome, and I hope that you get everything that you want to from this class today. Welcome again. If there's anything we can do for you, we're here. Great.
0: Well, thank you very much, Christina. Totally a pleasure to work with you, truly. How's the sound? I hear a weird little echo, but yeah, it'll all work out. Well, first off, I went to San Francisco State. I got a near master's in developmental psychology there and bounced midway through my thesis when I realized I was more interested in being a clinician than an academic. But that said, wow, I just think that's great uh, that you're here. That's really super. Okay, so um, what I hope to explore with you today is one of the most profound and often difficult and obscure topics in certainly Buddhism as well as in, I think, philosophy and psychology as well. The sense of there being some kind of solidified, enduring entity inside, looking through the eyes, and yet when we actually try to locate that one, it's very slippery and elusive, and also getting attached to that one seems to be such a source of suffering. Uh, so my hope with you today is to bring to bear uh, the um, kind of research and insights from psychology as well as in the last 100, especially 10 years or so, the developments in neuroscience to, take a, to inform our experiential practice related to this topic. Uh, as with anything, uh, as we go into those three areas of psychology, neuroscience, and contemplative wisdom, especially the tradition that I am mainly trained in, and we are operating in the framework uh, of here today, that being Buddhism, uh, in terms of those three circles: psychology, neuroscience, and Buddhism, the point is not to believe anything per se. The point is as the Buddha taught uh, two thousand five hundred years ago and As every scientist, every true scientist has said ever since, see for yourself. Judge by um, your own direct experience, in particular that which seems helpful. The Buddha was interested in what is true, he was much more interested in what is useful. Pragmatic orientation. So that's the exploration here today. Uh, In terms of that exploration, we'll do it both experientially as well as, um, I would say, in terms of what might be called pointing out instructions, drawing certain distinctions or uh, highlighting certain processes uh, conceptually, intellectually even. There will be no midterm, intellectually, conceptually, but the point of all that, uh, you know, the secondary interest is that these are kind of cool ideas. But the primary point is to use these conceptual distinctions and a little bit of theory as a way to inform and um, clarify the ongoing stream of consciousness for yourself. So that's that's the material here. Um, my tendency is to zoom along. Uh, I'd rather give too much than too little. Uh, these uh, talks and practices that we're doing here will be recorded. I don't know how they're going to handle... Questions. I assume you're going to take them out for the recordings. Is that true? If people speak themselves. So your own voice will not appear in the recordings that uh, will appear for free on dharmaseed.org, d h a r m a s e e d.org, dharmaseed.org, a wonderful organization, a nonprofit. All the teachings are freely offered there. And you'll find many, 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 many wonderful teachers there with me tucked away in a corner, just, uh, you know, search on my name, Rick Hansen, you'll see the uh, headline for this particular workshop. So if you want to listen to any of it again uh, or, you know, do the practices, I believe you can download them to your own devices uh, and then use them whenever you want uh, as guided meditations for yourself. So that, that material is freely offered. You can come back to it again. Also, we'll put out a little uh, piece of paper uh, in the foyer, unless they've done it already, where... If you give me your name and um, email address, which I'll never share with anybody, except people that work with me, uh, uh, I will send you a link to a full-color PDF of these slides, which, uh, as with anything I I have, you can use for yourself. You know, adapt it, use them, do whatever you want. So uh, if you give me your email address, I'll send you a link to the slides. Unless you say just slides, I will subscribe you to my free weekly newsletter, Just One Thing. It's a practice newsletter. Uh, you know practices like I think the one this week is rest I'm working on that myself uh, prior to that the week before it was something like relax you've arrived uh, uh, others that are maybe very relevant to this topic don't take it personally things like that and you can unsubscribe at any time it's, and if you're already receiving that if you give me your name and uh, email address you won't get two copies of the newsletter because uh, the email senders just send it out to, uh, to one address so, so the point is, um, even though we're going to get into the deep end of the pool, I hope, and even though we're going to explore a lot of material, uh, there's no need. There's there's no sense of there's no need for a sense of burden about it. You know, just kind of let it flow, roll with it. I will end very close to on time at four thirty. I'm very happy to talk with people at breaks and at lunch. It's one of my favorite parts. And afterward, uh, so if you have a personal question, feel free to bring it. Um, and we'll slow down for questions, comments, and discussion uh, along the way, too. Okay, so far? All right. Uh, Any quick questions about logistics or anything? Uh, By the way, normally when we do Q&A, it's just helpful for others to hear, unless it's like a quick question, what was a word I just said, you didn't hear it, or something like that. If you have something a little more than that, uh, it's great to use the microphones, and we'll set up opportunities to do that. Okay. Sounds like we're ready to roll. All right. Okay. Great. Um, this is one of my all-time favorite places in the world. I was on the board here for nine years. We have term limits here, so I termed out. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, just, it's great. So really enjoy being here. It's a very beautiful place that's been developed by so many wonderful people who, uh, whose generosity, really, uh, of so many forms. Uh, Effort, time, attention, heart, and occasionally some money uh, has really enabled uh, this uh, world-class meditation center to be here Then, in in my opinion and prediction, will be here a thousand or or more years from now. Barring... (laughs) Barring something really unusual. Okay, so here we go. So, what are we talking about here? Uh, To begin with, two truths. Uh, This is a fundamental uh, perspective in Buddhism. Uh, It's the same perspective we see in modern science. The uh, recognition of the impermanence, the transience, certainly of all phenomenology, are the transience of our experience, which is where we begin, and from which we plausibly infer the existence of Material object of reality, which, in most cases, is um, highly uh, impermanent and transient itself on different timescales. I mean, the sun, for example, three or four billion years from now, will gradually use up its supplies of hydrogen and through various processes will expand and become a red giant, first swallowing up Mercury and then Venus and then Earth. Probably reaching close to Mars, but not getting there. It will be springtime on Mars. And then the sun will gradually contract again, three or four billion years from now, to a white dwarf and all gone. So there are different time scales. And then there's the time scale, moment to moment to moment, of the gradual um, um, processes of change and renewal in the body, even the bones of the skull, right? All the atoms in the bones of the skull turn over roughly every 7 to 10 years. And other cellular and molecular processes in the body turn over even more rapidly than that. So, you know, at different time scales, whether it's the little synapses uh, on neurons that recycle every few weeks or less... Uh, whether it's dynamic uh, molecular electrochemical processes in neurons that are firing 5 to 50 times a second or more, uh, whether it's synchronized patterns of activation involving millions or more uh, neurons firing synchronously up to 100 you know, times per second. Uh, you know, there's a lot of change that's going on. So what are the implications of that? Well, first we have the implication of futility. And if you think about the points here, um, everything, certainly in our experience, is has three characteristics. It's made up of many parts, it's transient, and it arises and passes away dependently. It doesn't have any kind of absolute self existence. Right? And that characteristic of phenomenology is also a character of consciousness, of experience, is also a characteristic Three characteristics in most regards of materiality. There are some things that seem relatively permanent. The area of a circle on a plane is pi r squared. Two plus two is four. Uh, You know, impermanence is permanent, etc., etc., etc. But on the whole, there's a lot of transience even in material reality. Therefore, as the Buddha taught, no experience of any kind by definition, can be a reliable and lasting basis for deep happiness. And as he said, that highest happiness, which is peace. Right? Attempting to hold on to passing experiences, sights, sounds, sensations, emotions, thoughts, memories. Attempting, therefore, to hold on to that which is insubstantial phenomenologically as well as transient is therefore a source of suffering. It's both futile and frustrating. And yet for various reasons we tend to do that all day long. And the result of that is suffering and harm for ourselves and other beings. This is a fundamental teaching. It's offered To you, by the Buddha originally, and through me today, for you to see for yourself what's true about that. But his hypothesis, see for yourself, is that this is actually the case. This um, is the bad news. Okay? Then, there is the good news. The truth of fullness. Even as experiences fall away, new ones arise. Um, the, um, the brain tries to crave and it suffers as a way to um, pass on its genes through meeting three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, as umbrella terms. These are the fundamental needs of any animal, including ourselves. Obviously, the ways in which a human being goes about meeting its needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection is quite different from the way a crab goes about it or a, you know, a jellyfish or a worm or a mouse or a monkey. Uh, and yet, these are our most fundamental needs. So we're continually uh, chasing uh, the satisfaction or the fulfillment, rather, of these needs. And yet, what's interesting is that it's actually generally always already true that in most moments we are actually basically safe no shark is chewing off our leg no terrible pain is racking the body no grievous loss has shattered our world in the moment it may happen in the future it may have happened in the past in most nows continuously we're basically all right we're actually really safe In uh, most moments, there is a fullness. Certainly in the more developed parts of the world today, most people experience actually having enough food to eat reliably. Uh, Many exceptions, of course. Um, And in phenomenology itself, itself, there's an inherent fullness. It's overwhelming. The brain is filtering out a large fraction, various estimates, 99% of the stimuli bombarding us. If we were to open wide to all those stimuli, who could ever want for anything more? And then also in terms of connection, our needs for connection, inherently we're embedded in a vast web of causes that support us, part of all life altogether, in terms of human culture, we're rested in culture uh, with, again, some exceptions. Most people uh, certainly have legitimate, uh, genuine opportunities to feel uh, well-liked and well-loved imperfectly, and yet still, you know, on the, having been on the receiving end, currently on the receiving end of a fair amount of community, friendship, kindness, and caring. And certainly all of us can access the warm-heartedness uh, that's an inherent Part of our nature as the most social species on the planet, certainly, altogether, um, that no matter what hasn't been coming in from the outside, from the inside out, we can certainly flow caring, compassion, kindness, benevolence, generosity, support, and goodwill out into the world, and love is love, whether it's flowing in or flowing out. So fullness is another truth. It's right under our noses. And uh, ancient animals that were chilling in fullness, like, wow, I'm so fine right now, listening to Jack Cornfield, Tyra Brock in the other ear, looking at the sunlight on the leaves, feeling already satisfied, plenty to eat, already connected to my little monkey brothers and sisters, it's all good. Shomp! Those animals got eaten. The ones that were paranoid and cranky and insecure in their relationships, you know, picked up the threats around them and lived to see the sunrise and pass on genes that passed on genes. And here we are today at the top of the food chain with nuclear weapons. So, a lot of our craving, even though we're driven to crave, including biologically, uh, and even though so much of that craving is actually futile and frustrating, it's an effective way to keep jellyfish, crabs, lizards, ancient rats arising 200 or so million years ago who eventually replaced the dinosaurs, primates around 40 million years ago, tool manufacturing hominids with a third Earth size 2.5 million years ago, anatomically modern humans, 190,000, actually now being pushed back to around 300,000 years ago. You know, down that long road, we... You know, we are here today, the descendants in an unbroken line of survivors, upstream in time. And what enabled them to survive was this engine of craving. That, unfortunately today, in so many ways, is actually no longer necessary. And there are other ways to go through life that create much less collateral damage. Much less unnecessary suffering and harm for ourselves and others. Two truths. So, we can see that um, the truth of futility is that craving is hopeless, and the truth of fullness is that craving is unnecessary. It's one thing to understand this intellectually. I've been banging on this one myself for quite a while. It's a very, very different thing. To embody it, bring it into daily life, bring it into an increasing granularity of time, second by quarter second, by minute, by hour, by day, and bring it into an increasing granularity of space in the body and in um, our personal affairs. It's a very different matter to bring this fully into the body. And that's what um, has really interested me. Uh, I geek out on the intellectual fireworks. But at the end of the day, the import of this material is coming home. Coming home into an intimacy with our embodied experiencing moment to moment. And as the Buddha put it a long time ago, in this fathom-long body are to be found all of the causes of suffering and all of the causes of its end. So that's what I hope to explore with you today. So how do we embody and rest increasingly in the truth of fullness and help ourselves in real time dealing with engaged life? It's fairly easy to rest in the embodiment of fullness in a hammock in a hot tub while you're drinking a mint julep and getting a mani-pedi or something. I don't know. I've never had a manicure pedicure. I got to do it someday, you know. So yeah, that's easy, right? But how do we do it when we're stuck in traffic, juggling emails, you know, grappling with changes, dealing with a body that's aging, dealing with loss, dealing with teenagers, dealing with politics? Don't let's we won't go there too much if at all. I hope. So what do we, you know, how do we do that, right? How do we actually do that? Well, and this is where I think there's some really useful material, particularly from neuroscience. The ancient version of this is in this quotation up above me. Think not lightly of good, saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, filling you know uh, it, uh, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Right. In other words modern update, now 2,500 years later, based on the uh, understanding of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, through having beneficial experiences of fullness in various ways, through having beneficial experiences of needs authentically met in some shape or fashion, through having those experiences, and then in particular through registering those experiences as a lasting change of neural structure and function. In other words, learning in the broadest sense from those experiences. Um, Turning that momentarily encoded pattern of neural activation that underpins a beneficial experience of needs met and helping that encoded pattern become increasingly consolidated as a lasting change. Through that process that helps us feel increasingly rested psychologically in a sense of peace in terms of safety, calm strength, uh, capability and peace in terms of safety. Rested increasingly in a sense of fullness, gratitude, happiness, gladness and contentment in terms of satisfaction. And through experience-dependent neuroplasticity, taking in these experiences one by one, drop by drop, synapse by synapse, resting increasingly in a sense of connection with a feeling of um, um, worth and confidence and closeness with others and feeling valued and being able to disentangle from resentment and vengeance and ill will. As we do that increasingly through the internalization of our beneficial experiences, in a wonderful positive cycle, we become increasingly able to meet the next moment with its challenges without tipping in to craving and suffering, and harm, and rather engage the next moment on the basis of a felt sense already of fullness and balance and happiness, a resilient happiness altogether. That's the opportunity here. How do we actually do that neurologically? I'm going to, um, I have a lot of material about that. Um, I think what I do technically a lot is neurobhavana bhavana. That's not going to be a title of a book. A bhavana is Sanskrit for cultivation. So, um, you know, you could check out my material. It's freely offered on my website, rickhanson.net. The book Hardwiring Happiness gets into that in detail. There's a little chapter about this, I think, called Taking in the Good in Buddha's Brain that really Gets at the summary. Uh, the summary of the summary is in some of my talks, you know, TED-like talks, um, you know, that you can see for free online. So I won't go into a lot of detail about the the how of this process, of uh, the two-stage nature of learning altogether, moving from what I call activation to installation, encoding to consolidation getting those neurons to fire together so they wire together. I won't go into a lot of that detail, but it will be embedded in uh, the practices I'll be doing with you here. It's easy to think sometimes, though, that doing this is about chasing pleasure. It's a really important point, and it's a very understandable critique. And uh, to be clear here, for me, the point is to grow psychological resources of various kinds inside, including classic resources identified by the Buddha. Wise view, wise intention, wise skillfulness in, with uh, speech and action and livelihood, etc., etc. Uh, tranquility, mindfulness, compassion, self-compassion. Uh, to The point for me is to grow those resources for everyday well-being and healing and effectiveness as well as for Self-actualization, and if it's of interest to you, for um, awakening altogether. And for the purpose as we fill up our own cup, having more and more that we can offer to other people. So to me, that's the point. It just happens to be that the way to grow the good is a two-step process, and first we experience a psychological resource. We experience the good, and then second, we help it sink in. We help it produce a lasting change in our body, in particular in the nervous system and especially in the brain, that two-stage process. It happens to be true that most experiences of what is beneficial are enjoyable. So their enjoyability is a marker and a motivator, but it is not the point itself. The point itself is is to fill ourselves up and internalize an embodied uh, sense of fullness and balance which undoes the underlying causes of craving biologically, which are a sense of deficit and disturbance. Not enough, something's wrong. See that core idea? Therefore, through cultivation, through internalization, we actually reduce the causes of grasping and aversion and clinging because we're already full we're already at peace we're already contented we're already rested in love that's the point it's useful and pleasurable that most of these beneficial experiences are enjoyable because it keeps us motivated right? and their enjoyability is a marker usually of their value Certain experiences that are enjoyable, like that first hot rush of anger, are not good for us. You know, um, getting too hammered too many times. Uh, I had a teacher for a while, he said, once a philosopher, twice a pervert. You know, he didn't mean that so seriously but you get the idea so i mean there's a place for stuff but too much of that sort of pleasure obviously is harmful for ourselves and others so just because it's enjoyable doesn't prove that it's beneficial and some beneficial experiences are not enjoyable healthy remorse disenchantment realizing that you're in a job or a relationship that's like a dog that won't hunt or a tunnel with no cheese or a dry well or like sending a duck to Eagle School, something like that, right? That's not so pleasurable, and yet it's useful to really get that sometimes. Uh, but on the whole, it's great, actually, that you know, we've evolved reward systems to mark and motivate those experiences and those resources that are uh, beneficial in enormously pragmatic ways for ourselves and those we care about. Or to sum it up, as the headline of the slide puts it, cultivation, the gradual cultivation uh, of beneficial resources undoes craving. Now, cultivation is not the only practice. For me, it's in the context of what I think of as the three-legged stool of practice. Uh, In Pali, the language of early Buddhism, uh, metta sati bhavana. Uh, metta is loving-kindness, warm-heartedness, compassion, love, broadly defined. I think that's one of the three legs of the stool of practice. The other leg is sati, mindfulness, sustained present moment awareness that can be concentrated uh, or opened wide either way. Uh, that's the second great leg of the you know three-legged stool of practice. And then we have bhavana, learning, cultivation. All three are important. I've known people who are very good at sati, very mindful, except their heart is pretty cold, it's pretty dry, uh, and they're not learning much from their practices, they're not changing. I've known other people who are full of metta, so sweet, so loving, so juicy, so kind, and whoo, their mind's a popcorn machine, and maybe they're not learning that much along the way either. You know, and I've also known people who kind of, Okay, I'm talking about myself here to some extent. Grimly, or I'm gonna. I'm a personal growth junkie. I'm a personal growth warrior. You know, if it doesn't hurt, I'm not really gaining from it. Da-da. But not a lot of self awareness in terms of you know mindfulness. Not a lot of warmth, especially warmth in terms of self compassion and so forth for oneself. So all all legs are really important of this tool. I'm gonna tend to focus on. Um, all three of them today with an aim to cultivation including the cultivation of wise view wise insight into the you know passing stream of consciousness as well as hopefully an increasingly embodied cultivation of uh, a relaxation around um, taking life personally and uh, increasingly embodied uh, shift that disidentifies from point of view or uh, possessiveness, my precious, right? Uh, as we explore, uh, you know, not self and taking yourself less personally. Okay? So that's kind of the overview, right? Now, I hope we can slide into a practice. So first, let's just see five minutes or so. Any questions or comments so far? If you don't mind using the mic or some of the volunteers will bring you a mic. You won't have, right? We'll bring people mics. Is that correct? Yep. Nod, yeah, no. Okay, good. We will bring you a mic. All right, great. So any questions or comments so far? On what I've said, ideally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Happy to talk with you about anything at the breaks. Okay, great. Over here. The microphone over here. If you keep your hand up. All right, yeah. And then people can hear you. Uh, Okay, over here. Keep that hand up. Here we go, Monica. Do, do, do to do, 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 and the mic runners are going to move to you. Yay! Good. One thing I started working on after a retreat, along, you know a bit back, was the so-called perfection or parmi of patience. Man, good. I always deliver the mic turned on, so
1: I think it's on. hello oh wow i just want to
0: make sure i understood that you said that one is the experience itself and then the point is cultivation yeah did i understand that and what we're going to do is learn how to cultivate and those three pieces of stool is part of the cultivation really close so and it's great to check it so um in my usual way partly because i've i've I have a lot of material out there and some people know about it, some people don't. So I tend to just hit the high points especially, but I'm very happy to slow down. I get really happy to. And so what I said there was, first, in a very basic sense, if we want to help ourselves or anybody, like our students, our clients, our children and patients, what have you, people who work for us even, if we want to help any kind of learning or development or growth to occur, including the growth of healing or the growth of uncovering what what was beautiful and always already there, any kind of lasting change, by definition, must require a lasting change in the body. Otherwise, we're left with magic. Now, I believe in magic, but most, and if you like, all, potentially, um healing growth learning development acquisition of beneficial resources such as insight or mindfulness or compassion or happiness or gratitude or grit or resilience any kind of acquisition of a lasting resource must entail must involve a lasting change in the body mainly a lasting change of neural structure and function that is the fundamental process. So how does that process of growth happen? There's tremendous attention to what we're growing, very little attention in psychology or spiritual practice around how we learn, how we grow. That's what's gotten me very interested. And I call it taking in the good. We could call it cultivation, maybe mindful cultivation. And that process of change is fundamentally takes two steps. There initially is an experience, in most cases there is some unconscious learning, but most of our learning has to do with experiences which are in the field of awareness, even if they're in the background of awareness, mainly those experiences in the foreground of awareness. So we start with an experience. We don't have the technology, uh, thank goodness, that can plug a cable into the back of the head, and suddenly you know how to fly a helicopter or do kung fu like in the movie The Matrix, right? Um, The brain is old school. You got to get the song playing to record it. But then, just experiencing is not learning. Aha. So many therapists, me included, so many teachers, coaches, parents, educators, mindfulness trainers, human resources trainers, whatever, throw experiences on the wall, hoping that something will stick. But if we don't help that experience, change us in some durable way, whoop, momentarily enjoyable, useful, what have you, but no gain. Left all that money on the table. So that's what I'm really saying. It's a simple matter, and you can see it for yourself. Pragmatically, it really boils down to have it, enjoy it. Have the experience you're trying to grow. Have what you're trying to grow. Experience what you're trying to grow. Have it. And then second, turn on the inner recorder once you get that song playing in your mind, and stay with it for a breath or two or longer. Feel it in your body. There are a lot of little factors you can do to steepen your personal growth curve as you flow through your day. Uh, I've written about them a lot. You'll hear me do them in here. But the essential process is to keep those neurons firing together more and more intensively, more and more f- pervasively so that they wire together more, in more and more durable ways. That's the essential process. Okay. So then, uh, that process so, of learning isn't the only part of awakening or development or healing. It also, it's important to be mindful. It's also important to have a warm heart. It's also important to know why you're doing what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just kind of calling out this process of cultivation and learning kind of modestly and in context. It, for me, sits alongside, one way to think of it, the three-legged stool of practice, alongside a fundamental warm-heartedness, hopefully, and a fundamental mindfulness, hopefully which aid cultivation, and cultivation aids them because we can cultivate mindfulness and we can cultivate a loving and um, strong heart. So, right? And then we can use that to repeatedly grow key resources through in experiencing that our needs are met Aha. or through experiencing factors that help us meet our needs right? and in so doing grow mental muscles. So that over time, we both experience increasingly a resting state, a home base of fullness and balance, enoughness already, which undoes the ancient biological engine of craving, which is based upon, rises dependently upon, a sense of deficit and disturbance, whether it's a human, a lizard, a mouse, or a monkey. Something missing, something wrong. And you can watch your own mind. You're sitting here in the room. I watch my own mind as well. Everything's fine. And yet there's a trickle of anxiety. You know, an ancient primal uneasiness. There's plenty, you've had plenty of food. You're okay. And yet the mind keeps looking for something new to want. Right? And we're connected. You know, people like you. People love you. Right? And yet the mind goes, well, do you love me today? You know? What about that one-star review of my book on Amazon? Hmm? Right, Primal insecurity, relationally. Right? So, you know, the engine of craving is very subtle. It's often gross, but it's, particularly in modern societies, it tends to be quite subtle. But there's tremendous unhappiness in Beverly Hills. Just watch the Kardashians, you know, um, and so, uh, it's not so. It's material conditions are really important, but as the Buddha taught, uh, imagine life twenty five hundred years ago. You know, as he taught, even when the objective conditions of a person's life are pretty poor, it is still possible to rest in a profound sense of peace, contentment, and love of needs met. So that's what I was saying. We use the machinery of learning, of cultivation to actually capture the benefit of everyday, usually mild, usually fleeting experiences of needs met as well as other experiences of factors of well-being and effectiveness. And through cultivating, through registering and taking in the benefits of those experiences in a nice positive cycle, we become more and more able to rest in what I call the green zone, the responsive setting of the brain in which there's already a basic Sense in our core of fullness and balance on the basis of which we, need, we meet the next moment. Do we, do we meet challenges to safety, satisfaction, and connection on the basis of deficit and disturbance with a mind colored by fear, frustration, and heartache? Or as the Buddha talked about a long time ago, ha- uh, hatred in terms of safety, greed in terms of satisfaction, and ill will in terms of uh, connection... Do we meet the challenges of life on that basis? Or alternately, due to growing the good inside ourselves, through internalization again and again and again, usually 10 seconds or less at a time, many times a day, do we meet challenges to safety, satisfaction, and connection on the basis of an underlying felt sense of peace and contentment and love? That's the question. We have no choice about our needs. We have no choice about... The three stage evolution of the brain, the inner lizard, mouse and monkey, you know, reptilian brainstem, mammalian subcortex, primate human cortex. We don't have a choice about that. We don't have a choice about the ways in which the brain and body tend to shift into one or one or one or the other of two settings in terms of meeting needs. Kind of fight, flight, freeze, reactive red zone, you know, not enough, and a sense of disturbance. That's your brain on the second noble truth of craving? Or do we meet our needs on the basis of the responsive mode, the green zone, in which there's already a sense of you know, peace, contentment, and love? We, we don't have a choice about those two settings. So no choice about needs, no choice about structure of brain, no choice about settings, only choice. Which setting are we in? Are we in the red zone or the green zone? Or you know, in what ways, in what minutes of each day? All right, that's enough blather for me. How about a little practice, Wintre? So, I thought since it's, by the way, I want to be really clear. Our home base, our home base, whether you're a zebra or, you know, thinking about Robert Sapolsky's great book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, or, you know, uh, a gorilla, one of my teachers wrote a book called The Eating Gorilla Comes in Peace, Needs Met. Needs met, right? Or, um, you know, a human today. uh, The resting state of the body and the mind, uh, the sustainable equilibrium condition, which by definition is our home base, the resting state of a complex system is what really defines it, not its out-of-bounds states of disturbance. The resting state of body and mind, actually, our true home, is a felt sense of needs met enoughness, which um, conserves internal resources and really supports repair and renewal of body and mind. That's our resting state with uh, you know a sense of well-being in it, with qualities of peace, contentment, and love. So it's not like we have to scratch and claw our way up the mountain to get to our true home. It's more like we just need to relax and settle into our true home. That's good news. So here I'd like to do a practice with you and actually explore what it is to settle into your natural home base. And in the process of that, help yourself uh, disentangle from craving subtleties of resisting what's unpleasant, craving chasing what might be pleasant, craving clinging to what feels relational or craving getting bored with what's neutral and wanting it to hurry up and get happy. All right. So we're going to see what it's like to rest increasingly in a resilient happiness, a resilient well-being, moment by moment by moment. All right. we'll see how this goes. As with any practice, do what's good for you. You're welcome to stand up, lie down, uh, try not to disturb people around you. Uh, you're you know, If you like, take notes, but again, be a little aware of what it might sound like uh, as you take notes. Um, and uh, like any practice as well, it's an experiment. All right? See what happens. So you're trying to do something, and then you are seeing what happens. I will say as few words as possible, but since this is a guided practice, I will offer some guidance. All right? And it'll be about 20 minutes or so. Ballpark. Okay, you want to give it a whirl? Well, let's try it. Okay. So... And the point here is not about forcing anything or straining. It's more like opening into, you know, inviting, encouraging, settling into a natural state. It's sort of like that. But once you are kind of in a good place, it's perfectly okay to kind of keep encouraging it. This is a cultivation practice. This is not what might be called a choiceless awareness practice where essentially in the most receptive uh, way possible we simply witness the ongoing streaming of consciousness. This practice is a little more uh, of a wise effort practice in which we are encouraging um, and protecting certain wholesome states of mind. So That's its nature. I love choiceless awareness practices, and what we're going to do here is a little different. So here we go. Uh, I tend to start with the most primal need of all for safety. And you want to help yourself here as we practice to feel as safe as you reasonably can, being aware of and letting go of unnecessary anxiety subtleties of uneasiness, letting them go, letting go of guarding, embracing, based on an authentic sense now and now of being fundamentally safe. So I will offer a few cues that could be useful in establishing yourself in a growing sense of peace. If anything, do what works for you.
1: One is to relax. Like Breathing calm,
0: perhaps taking a few breaths in which you make the exhalation at least as long, if not longer than the inhalation, which will engage the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system, which will slow the heart
1: rate to calm the body, relax. Also recognize genuine protections,
0: mode safety, such as the strong walls
1: of this building, the ability of the chair you might be sitting in, good-hearted volunteers and staff who are here to take care of us. And the protections of the larger setting we're in. peaceful, very safe. recognizing whatever is true about protection,
0: you truly can't afford to feel increasingly safe
1: and at peace. Mindful of any bracing or defending or guarding. Unnecessary apprehensiveness or worry. And allowing that to fall away. Placed with a growing sense of being at home. Opening to a growing
0: tranquility in the body, in the heart, mind, around which could be pain,
1: frustration, conflict. Fundamental and growing peacefulness. of the future letting go of the past coming home to now sense so of the body being basically all right the ongoing livingness
0: of the animal Be all right in the future. You may not be all have been all right in the past.
1: But in this, long as you're breathing, heart is beating. As long as you're going on being. the second step of the practice
0: letting whatever sense of safety and peacefulness is present letting it move to the back of the mind increasingly on helping yourself feel satisfied enough
1: Grateful enough, glad enough.
0: Rest increasingly and come home to a sense of contentment. Sense of well-being with no
1: wish for the moment to be other than what it is. That's contentment. Give some things that you feel grateful about, glad about. Bring a little smile. Skillful here to allow or encourage. aware of breathing,
0: you are opening to and inviting a growing sense of contentment or related qualities of gratitude or gladness or happiness, a growing sense of contentment to
1: color the mind. I'd hear breathing. open to a growing sense of well-being,
0: being mindful of unnecessary frustration or disappointment falling away,
1: Low of drivenness, Low of addictive cravings. Bide already contented. Well, you might be
0: aware, perhaps looking back over your life a bit, so much pleasure already. Even in a hard and difficult, challenging life, so many chocolate chips eaten, so many... when
1: thirsty, so many good times. Accomplished. Feel that you've already arrived now. grasping, chasing, driving,
0: craving,
1: aware of habitual frustration or disappointment. Allowing it, gently encouraging it to sort of dissolve as you increasingly
0: to a contented.
1: All being to things as they are. Contentment has been developed here, letting it move to the
0: back of awareness as we focus in the third and last step here on love. Without strain or tension,
1: kind of coming home, naturally warm heart. This is to begin with helping yourself feel
0: cared about in a variety of ways. Challenged life, there are opportunities to feel included. In the form of being cared about. Opportunities to feel based on the present or the past seen
1: with, opportunities to feel appreciated, respected, valued, opportunities to feel cared about in terms of being liked with
0: friendliness or healthy affection coming to you. Last, in terms of feeling cared about, there are opportunities to feel loved. Point here is not getting caught up in any complicated narrative, it's to help the songs begin to play in your mind of warm-heartedness, if you like, starting with receiving caring in anyone of a variety of ways feel cared about
1: feel liked appreciated even loved Also feel caring.
0: Encouraging or landing in your own compassion for others, your own kindness, friendliness. Find key people make you really feel cared about, and you might bring to mind key beings, including non-human animals. Perhaps nature altogether, the planet altogether, that you feel really caring toward. So oh, you can increasingly come home to and rest in. Widely defined
1: a flow of love. Staying at home, in love. Breathing colored with kindness, colored with a sense of receiving, caught up in stories or complexities or issues. Going after
0: the felt embodied experience of relatedness, connection, falling away of old feelings of inadequacy, falling away
1: of resentments, falling away. No need for any of that as you rest at home in love. I'll take a final minute or so,
0: exploring what it's like to feel like your needs are already met
1: to the authentic extent that they are. Hide here in the green zone.
0: Sense of fullness and balance already. Pleasurable sense of peace and contentment and love.
1: With an awareness of needless craving falling away. And if only for a second,
0: what's it like to abide already full, already at ease,
1: already balanced, already whole? What's it like? How about
0: we segue into a break? Uh, Feel free to protect whatever's been beneficial here. Notice that you can stand up, move, drink,